Welcome everyone to another episode of the Accord Research Alliance podcast. I'm Nathan Maloney, one of the co-hosts, and I'm very excited about today's conversation. I recently got to talk with Professor Mary Kay Gugarty, who co-wrote the book, The Goldilocks Challenge, with Dean Carlin in 2018. And it's such a helpful conversation and a helpful book. Uh, The concepts and the principles from this book are so applicable to the organizations within the Accord Research Alliance and and those who are uh, partnering with these organizations to try and measure what matters. And so this book really gets at how do you establish what they call a right fit monitoring and evaluation system or a right fit evidence system. And I know you're going to enjoy the conversation, but I also encourage you to get the book if you haven't yet. I put a link to it in the in the show notes, and there's just such great content in there and a lot of things that should encourage you about where you're at, perhaps as an organization currently, but also challenge you of how you can take the next step in your monitoring and evaluation work uh, so that you can be continually learning, continually using data and information to make better decisions so that you have better programs. So we'll get to that conversation here. But as always, if you have ideas of of who we can be talking to next, shoot us a note at ara at accordnetwork.org. I think it's really identify what's most important, figure out how you're going to learn about it, and take action on it commit to taking action. I think those are the three, you know, that if I could boil it down to three simple steps, that's what it would be. I'm talking today with Professor Mary Kay Gugerty about her recent book, The Goldilocks Challenge, which she co-authored with Dean Carlin from Innovations for Poverty Action. And it's a book written for those within social sector organizations who are developing decision-making systems to improve programs and impact. And at its core, it's really advocating for what they call right fit monitoring and evaluation systems or even right fit evidence systems. So it applies to the audience for this podcast, and I'm sure many of you have already read it. Uh, Professor Gurti studies nonprofit performance and accountability systems and teaches public policy to master's students at the Evans School of Public Policy at the University of Washington. So she's joining today from Seattle. Uh, Mary Kay, thanks for taking time to join us today. Thanks so much for asking me. I'm really excited for our conversation. Great. Well, maybe to get us started, could you just Tell me a bit more about your background. What led you to teaching public policy and studying nonprofit performance? Sure. I studied development economics um, as a graduate student, and a lot of my early work really looked at the impact of outside funding, of donor funding, um, on indigenous community-based organizations. And so from the get-go, I was really interested in the problems that Uh, NGOs faced in trying to reach and collaborate with local organizations and the challenges that organizations faced as they were seeking to get more funding, how that funding sometimes changed kind of work they did and the kind of people that got to participate in those organizations. So that was sort of the central theme of my early research. 
But as I came to the University of Washington to the Evans School of Public Policy, I began to teach NGO management and evaluation. And really, and it was right at the time that randomized control trials were starting to get more popular and people were really wrestling with this sort of accountability question about how do we hold NGOs and nonprofits accountable for the work that they do. And so that really got me interested in this issue of measuring nonprofit performance, both for large organizations, but also also for smaller organizations and the kind of tensions that those organizations with lower capacity face in trying to figure out how do they think about the impact of the work that they're doing. Great. And so I wanted to spend most of our time talking about the book you wrote um, in 2018. So it's been a little bit, but the book called The Goldilocks challenge, which I have here with me. And I know it's been almost two years now since that came out, but I think it's been making its rounds within people I talk to within different profit organizations as part of the Accord Research Alliance. And again, this book's about really looking at uh, developing right fit evidence system. But to really understand this and maybe to get at this a little bit more, which we will, I think we first need to talk about the word impact. It's a word that's used a lot. But how would you or how do you in the book define it? Do you see any common mistakes within organizations when they're talking about, quote, impact? Yeah, it's a great question. And we do have in the book kind of a very specific definition of the word impact or how we use the term impact. And I think part of a, it's a challenging word because it gets used a lot, thrown around a lot. What's the impact of our work? We want to have greater social impact. And I think um, as a general purpose term, that's sort of fine. But when we start to really think about how we, how we measure the work that organizations do in the evaluation field, impact does have a pretty specific meaning, which is really something about how, how to kind of assess whether or not an organization is creating the social change that they seek to create in the world. And if they're not, how they might go, uh, go about doing things differently. So in that sense, the word impact really has something to do about what evaluators like to call attribution, right? Trying to kind of figure out whether or not a given program or organization or initiative is creating social change. And that there are certain sort of technical requirements um, that come into play when you're trying to do that. And that pushing, you know, so the central argument of our book, I think, is that pushing organizations to really demonstrate impact before they're ready or when they aren't set up to have the capacity to do that forces organizations to measure things that they shouldn't be measuring, to measure them poorly, and to spend a lot of time and effort on collecting data that doesn't really give them helpful information. And so we wanted to be really clear on this definition of impact and really clear about at what stage we should ask organizations to move towards impact. And maybe sort of I can tell a quick story that was sort of the motivating moment for this book that that demonstrates this. I was working with Innovations for Poverty Action with my co-author, Dean Carlin, in Seattle, giving a training on impact evaluation to a set of local NGOs and nonprofits. It was a day and a half. We went through lots of scenarios. You know, how do you set up an impact evaluation? When can it work and when can't it work? And at the end of the sort of training, somebody raised their hand and said, this is fantastic. I really feel like I understand impact evaluation. Um, And one of the things I now understand about impact evaluation is that my organization will absolutely never do an impact evaluation. So what would you suggest I do instead? And there was kind of this big pause because not because there's no answer to that, but there's really no clear, concise answer to that uh, question, or at least there wasn't at the time. And that was kind of the moment when the book was born, this idea of if if we're not going to, until we're ready or if we're not set up to do impact evaluation, 
what should we be doing instead? And so that's kind of what we set out to answer in this book and to try to provide organizations with a concise framework for answering that question. Yeah, I think that rings really true to me. And uh, especially thinking about what we've been talking about and, and discussing within the Accord Research Alliance the past several years, you know, there's been a lot of talk about RCTs and, and impact evaluations and how to go about that. And we oftentimes have people sitting in the room. Some might be staff at billion dollar organizations and some might be staff at an organization with less than a million dollars a year in revenue and really trying to understand where, you know, where should our organization fit within this broader conversation and really this, this push for these rigorous impact evaluations. And so I think for many, maybe reading your book is a, a bit of a sigh of relief and understanding that it's a pathway to get there and that might not be the starting point for everyone. But I think maybe just in a nutshell, I know you started to unpack it a little bit, but how would you describe the argument from the book about why or when an organization should not think about conducting an impact evaluation or a randomized control trial? Yeah, so I think for us, if I can summarize really quickly, that the, at least for me, I think one of the main takeaways from the book and the, and the project more generally is that until you feel confident about you know, how you're implementing your program, how well that's going, that, you know, that you're engaged in the activities that you think you're engaged in, and they seem to be having, you know, you're, you're able to deliver on your outputs and maybe your most immediate outcomes, you know, you're, you're try, starting to see evidence of some of the things that you care about, there's really no point in pushing yourselves to look for longer-term impact. So part of it is really a focus on understanding, learning, and improving programs before setting forth to think about measuring impact. And I think the other, the other thing to acknowledge is that there are some settings in which measuring impact, and, and I'm using impact in the very sort of evaluation sense of the word impact, in other words, trying to come up with a way of having a counterfactual to understand what would have happened in the absence of this program. There are a number of situations in which that is just not going to be possible, and we need to acknowledge those situations and then move on and think about other ways of understanding the impact of the program. And sometimes that's a matter of size and capacity. If a program is being implemented at a village level or a region level, right, we'll never have enough other regions um, that we can compare the program to. And oftentimes it is challenging to randomly assign a program to different individuals or different units. Now, I think, you know, the work of all the researchers affiliated with Innovations for Poverty Action and Poverty Action Lab and many of these groups show us that randomization is more feasible than I think we thought, you know, 10 years ago, you know, and I think the, the awarding of the Nobel Prize this year to the researchers from Poverty Action Lab and Innovations for Poverty Action, you know, demonstrates how much the field has shifted towards being able to create that kind of evidence. But for any given single organization, that can be really difficult to do. And so I think that needs to be a conversation the organization has with itself, with its funders up front about is the goal to move towards a day when we can undertake an impact evaluation or is the, is the goal to get the best and most credible evidence we can that we're implementing well and that it's very likely we're creating the social change that we seek to create. And so as far as unpacking a little bit more, I know a lot of the the book is centered around this framework that is that you call the CART principles, an acronym there. 
would you be able to briefly explain uh, what that acronym is and some of the core idea of, of each of those four principles? Sure. The CART principle is, is meant to be easy to remember and um, portable for organizations. When we, when we set about to answer this question, what should we do? You know, how should we assess our program if we're not doing an impact evaluation? We really wanted to get away from the kind of classic evaluation, I guess, starting point for thinking about this problem, which is, quote unquote, the gold standard is a randomized experiment, and then everything else is some approximation of that, of that gold standard. So to really think about if organizations are going to take a learning and improvement perspective, what kind of framework might help them think about creating a, a data system that's neither too large nor too small. And that's really where the Goldilocks sort of parable came in. We began the project by, by working with a number of NGOs, kind of assessing how they were approaching data and evidence in their organizations. And we really found two general problems, maybe three general problems. One was some organizations were collecting tons of data, and then it just sort of sat around on a computer or on a shelf. Other organizations were collecting almost no data. And then the third set of organizations were trying to collect data on outcomes or results, but, you know, sort of claiming attribution when they didn't really have a counterfactual. And so we wanted to create a framework that helped organizations avoid those mistakes and make better use of resources. And that's where, that's how we came up with the CART. So the CART stands for Credible, Actionable, Responsible, and Transportable. And I'll try to cover each one of those um, as briefly as I can. And the Credible principle has two parts. The first part is thinking about sort of data quality. In other words, what is the best data you can gather to measure something you want to measure? And does it seem like it's you know, valid and reliable, which are terms that have you know, precise meanings in evaluation. But I think even from a managerial organizational perspective, this kind of relates to the actionable principle. Can you collect data that's good enough that you'd be willing to take action on it? Because we also find a lot of organizations will collect data and then they'd say, well, I know, but there's this problem and that problem. And so then you're unwilling to act on the, you know, what the data is telling you. So you need to be able to collect data with enough fidelity and quality that you're, you're willing to trust it, which isn't to say there's a certain kind of data that's perfect. It's up to each organization to sort of think, for my context, what is, um, is going to be valid, reliable, believable data. And the second part of Credible is really trying not to use outcome or results data to, to sort of suggest attribution when it's not appropriate. So it's okay to collect outcome data and we need to have some sense of if we're trying to you know, help students improve their reading skills, you know, do we see reading skills moving? If we don't see reading skills improving, then there's probably no sense in trying to kind of think about an impact evaluation and attribution. But just because we see reading scores improving, right, we shouldn't claim that we are creating that change until we have the right evaluative setup to make that claim. So credibility is really about getting good data and then using data appropriately. And actionable is really about collecting data that allows you to make a useful decision. And so we found, as I said before, a lot of organizations that either lacked data to inform their decisions or had so much data they didn't know where to weigh in to try to use that data to make a decision. So actionable is really about asking yourself, you know, how will I use this data? What decision can I make with this data? And do I have the resources, the capability, the political and organizational will to make that decision? And those are tough questions. And, and, and we recognize that in posing those questions, but we really wanted to push organizations to say, if I'm never gonna use this data, why am I, like, what is it, I'm, why am I collecting this data? 
because that is not, to bring us to the third point, a responsible use of information. Um, and there, you know, there are obviously donors require data. There's lots of reasons why we might collect data that's not perfectly well suited. But if we can at least push organizations and donors towards sort of saying, what's the use of this data, then we might be able to winnow down the kinds of, you know, the, the large amount of data that many organizations are collecting. And so responsible really says, can I weigh the benefits and the costs of collecting this data? So we saw a lot of organizations that were collecting outcome data, for example, maybe trying to measure poverty or income or things that can be really challenging to measure because perhaps donors or others, you know, wanted that data, but they weren't really measuring it in a, in a credible or actionable way. And so that's not a particularly responsible use of resources. Responsibility also has the idea of opportunity costs, right? We, um, we, if we're collecting data, we're not doing other things. And we're also putting a burden on those with whom we work or with whom we're asking questions. So we need to weigh all that. And then the final uh, part of the card principles is being transportable. And transportable for us really is about generating opportunities for learning. So if you are collecting data, you are using a clear sort of theory of change or program model for what you're trying to do, and you're putting it out there in the world, then it provides opportunities for learning for you, but it also provides opportunities for learning for others. And I think a lot of the evidence portals and the, and the kind of um, evidence generation that organizations are now trying to do is really trying to highlight that issue of transportability, that if we share our experiences um, rather than me having to, you know, do my own impact evaluation, I might be able to look to other impact evaluations to provide me with evidence about how I might design my program. So that is, those are the CART principles in brief. Great. Now that's incredible overview there. So, so thank you for that. And I kind of want to do a quick follow-up, maybe put you on the spot yeah. here, but which of these four, so the credible, actionable, responsible, or transportable, which of these do you think has been most overlooked by nonprofits? Great question. I think, I think the hardest one for all organizations, and I would, this is true of public sector organizations, any kind of organizations that are trying to make decisions using data is really the actionable principle because it forces you to make the hard trade-offs um, about not just the data that would be nice to have, or while we're out there, why don't we collect all these other things, but really what's the data that we'll make a decision on, or what's the most important thing for us to know? And, and part of having actionable data, and this is a big point we also make in the book, is that you really do have to have a clear framework, you know, we would say a theory of change, into which that actionable data fits. And if you really think through your program, what you're trying to do, there may be areas where you actually have pretty good information or pretty high degree of confidence about how things are going and other areas where you actually don't have good information or you have a low degree of confidence about how things are going. And those are the areas that really provide opportunities for actionability, for really learning about how things are going um, on your program. And so that saying, you know, how will we use this data? Will we make a decision with this data? Do we have the will to make a decision with this data can help you pinpoint what's a good place for you to start in your data collection system? And not to steal your answer here, but I think from my own experience, I would say that actionable principle is, I would agree. I think that's often the one that is forgotten or overlooked in many cases. And it's really interesting or, or fascinating when you're in a meeting or talking and you're developing a plan for oh, we need this data or that data. And then you just pause and ask that question. What decision are we going to make based on this data? It's always, it's just a good reflection point because oftentimes we're maybe not thinking 
two or three steps ahead of what we're actually going to do uh, with the data. So um, any other tips or tricks that you've seen nonprofits using to really embed the actionable principle in the way that they work? I think um, I, I love the example that you just gave about sitting in meetings and sort of just asking that that pointed question and trying to kind of just, you know, put, push the issue a little bit, because I think it does make people think hard. I think it's hard to make data actionable without having some kind of framework or system for sitting down, examining the data, and then you know, trying to make a decision about what decision we're going to make. So in other words, having some kind of you know, performance framework. And I think organizations, it's very easy, especially with, with the technology that we now all have at our fingertips, to get really excited about creating a dashboard or you know, a really complex system. Um, we'll have red, green, and yellow, and we'll see how everything is going. Um, and it's a lovely idea, but sometimes by the time those dashboards get built, right, things have, have moved on in a different direction. So my recommendation and where I think organizations are, are kind of able to use this framework to make a difference is just to start off by creating whatever simple system for sitting down together, looking at the data, discussing the data, understanding what it tells us and what we can learn from it. Making that commitment to doing that, I think is the most important thing to kind of creating actionability because it's very easy to kind of keep moving. And so whether it's a monthly meeting, a quarterly meeting, it can be a blackboard, a whiteboard, a chalkboard, you know, it doesn't, it can be something really simple, at least to start with, but that practice of looking at the data and then trying to make decisions based on it, I think is really critical to embedding this in organizations. That's great. And the idea of being able to start simple, start small, but just committing to, as you said, sitting down together. And, you know, from my own perspective, just getting the, getting the calendar invite on people's uh, calendars and just have it be recurring meetings, whatever that looks like in your organization or makes sense. But just having that commitment to it, to sitting down and looking at data um, is, is critical. So in the book, you talk about this idea of a right fit evidence system. So I want to unpack both sides of that. Maybe first, what is an evidence system? What all goes into that? And how would you know as an organization that you have, you have one that is just right, as you call it? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just right might be, uh, I, I'm not sure anyone ever gets to that point where they can sit down and say, this is, this is now absolutely perfect. But I think, and I, it's interesting because this is the work, uh, one of the things that has evolved out of the Goldilocks book and project has been something called the Right Fit Evidence uh, Initiative, which is located at Innovations for Poverty Action, is now a set of people who are working with organizations trying to implement these principles and learn a little bit more about what it, what it means to have a right fit evidence system. So I, I think it's something that we're learning about um, on an ongoing basis. But I think, again, the, the principles that they've sort of seen as they work with organizations are really, again, it, it's kind of the, it's the basic stuff. It's, it's sitting down and thinking about that theory of change, trying to identify the, the, the pain points or the opportunity points where data would actually make a difference in improving the programs. Um, I think one of the things that has come out of that work, which I think is really important that we probably don't emphasize as much in the book, is that um, that, um, that system, that evidence system, cannot just be situated in, uh, you know, for those organizations that are big enough to have an evaluation unit. It can't sit off there. It has got to be integrated into the core organizational strategy. Managers, without evaluation responsibility, 
have to see the system and care about the system along with the people that, you know, people like me that just love data and can never have enough data. So it really has to be integrated into what the organization or the initiative cares about in terms of performance so that it's, uh, it's not seen as a, you know, an extra, but seen as core to strategy. So I think that's one thing that, that they've discovered. And building out a theory of change for a complex program can quickly get, I'm sure we've all seen, you know, crazy theories of change with arrows and boxes and things going everywhere. And that can quickly get overwhelming as well. And that's also hard to bring back to a manager's attention. So while that elaboration might be needed to get going, then simplifying down to like, here are the three or four core things we're going to start by examining and we're going to get into this practice and we're going to collect this data and we're going to come back together. So I think um, simplifying and then, and then really um, it takes a commitment of staff and time to sit down together for, you know, a day or two or a couple of, of, you know, intensive meetings to really think about what kind of data could we collect um, and would be meaningful to us. And so again, I think core, uh, managerial commitment to that is is really critical and then a set aside time but then also trying to really main, remain simplistic I mean not simplistic but simple in in how we start in that effort so I think that that's the starting point mm-hmm. you know how you I think how you know when you're getting closer to having that kind of right fit evidence framework is where you can really look back and identify moments where you have collected data used that data and shifted and improved, you know, what your program is doing as a result of data. And I think the more you can point to those and highlight those, then the more valuable that process becomes within the organization. So I've heard you say a couple of times this idea of, of starting small or, you know, starting simple, or maybe you pull out a couple elements from the theory of change first that you identify that you want to start collecting the data on and understanding better. So in some ways, I, I kind of take that a little bit to, to think about this idea of right fit, it might be that at different points of your organization's life, right fit might mean something different. And hopefully um, it's not a static state and it's something that as an organization, you're continuing to develop your capability in. And as you think about the complexity more and more, um, having the, the skills and the commitment to do that. So I, I wanna ask a question here. One thing kind of stood out to me when I was reading this book, and I'm curious if it maybe did for others as well. You had a statement that if you can't collect and analyze credible and actionable data at a responsible cost relative to the benefit, then don't bother collecting the data, uh, which is a bit of a provocative statement. And you, you recommend that you use that money to help more people. And I guess just have a little bit of an inherent conflict when I, when I hear that, just really trying to understand it. I mean, I like the idea, but I think some might also ask, you know, that's a great idea, but how do you actually know you are helping people if you are going to spend more money on it, if you're not able to collect the data, or if you don't have a true counterfactual, how do you know you're actually helping and not hurting in that scenario? So I guess my question would be this, how can we ensure that we are being responsible with our funds and that we're actually helping people and not hurting them if we aren't conducting our own impact evaluations? Yeah, it's a great question. It was a provocative statement, and I think we, we made it, you know, it, to, to be provocative in a lot of ways, um, because I think if, you know, if you 
push people on the extreme case. It helps to sort of clarify thinking and and and, and get people to to articulate their um, position. So I think there's there's a couple of different things in there. So I, I do think in general we would sort of stand behind the position that for all for all the data that you're collecting, if you can't collect it in a reasonably credible an actionable way, you really need to think about um, either improve, you know, how can I get closer to those or can I just let go of this for now? Um, and that's, you know, that's easy to say, um, you know, as a researcher, right, it's harder to say sometimes when you're sitting inside an organization and perhaps a funder needs that data or you're part of a larger consortium in which you've all agreed to collect a certain set of data. So politically, you know, that may not always be a completely feasible position. But I do think it's a really good um, just check, intellectual check on the kinds of data that we're collecting and the kinds of resources that we're spending. And we also make a provocative statement, I guess I would say, uh, you know, about, about outcomes data, right? That you really should be careful about what kind of data you're collecting at outcomes. So the things that go beyond just your program deliverables and, and start to look at the, at the changes that you're trying to create, that you need to be really careful about collecting outcome data if you don't have a counterfactual. And I think, again, it's, it's meant to be a provocative position. I think there are two, some, some ways in which that kind of data collection should be done, if it can be done credibly and actionably. And I think, you know, one is what I, what I mentioned earlier, that if we don't start to see movement in the immediate outcomes, the most immediate results we hope to see, um, then we probably want to reconsider whether it's the right time for an impact evaluation. So at least seeing what looks like credible movement in outcomes is worth measuring as a precursor in some senses to the impact evaluation while being careful, you know, um, about the kinds of claims that we, that we make about it. Right. And I think that's our, our biggest position is that we just need to, we need organizations need to be careful about the claims they make. Again, we're really, there's a lot of push to demonstrate impact. So part of our argument is really about the field more generally, which includes funders and donors about, you know, why are we pushing organizations to spend this kind of money and make claims that if they feel like if they don't make some other organization is going to make that claim and they're going to be left, you know, in a, in a sort of poor position. So there's definitely a political economy of this that we're trying to address along with the kind of, um, I guess, organizational piece of it. So I, I think it's just that organizations have to really winnow the data that they're collecting, prioritize credibility and actionability and sort of build from there and you know, try to push themselves to be willing to let go of data collection initiatives that don't meet those standards, whether it's you know, data on activities, whether it's data on outputs, um, whether it's data on outcomes. And I think my, my last point on that is that we try to make the case in the book, and I think it's you know, true in general, that a lot of times you know, data on outputs has, um, gets a bad name because it seems like this poor cousin right to data on outcomes. So if I tell you, oh, I trained you know, 10 teachers or 50 students participated, you're like, oh, you know, that doesn't tell me anything about outcomes. And that's absolutely true. But it is a really important step, you know, it's an important step in program performance and understanding how things are going, maybe at different sites and different locations. Why are 100 students showing up here and only 20 showing up there? That's a real learning opportunity, right? That if we don't collect that data and then have that internal using system, 
we don't we don't get to make we don't get to take advantage of that learning opportunity. So we want to kind of hold back up, you know, outputs um, as as when embedded in a system for performance as having really good information, and then as being the things that allow you, you know, once you know those are happening, then you really can move on and start to measure those immediate yeah. outcomes. That's great, and it's almost like if you, as an organization, aren't able to learn from your outputs and you don't have the the practices or the commitment to learning and improving based on your output measurements, then it, taking a step to the outcome measurement is probably not the right fit for you at that moment. And so it's really helpful. You talked about donors um, there. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I really enjoyed how you ended the book. Uh, you had two chapters uh, written to donors specifically, one for institutional donors and one for what you call retail donors. And so we might have uh, some people uh, listening that would consider themselves part of, of those groups, but also, you know, thinking about it for those inside of organizations that are um, working with donors, dealing with donors who might be pushing them toward impact evaluations. And maybe at the moment the organization isn't ready. What would you say? What was kind of the main points from those chapters? I mean, should we just, mail them a copy of your book or what would be some, <laughs> some things for us well, to talk that, about? Yes, of course you should. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think that those arguments, you know, that are, that are, that are kind of the ending arguments of the books or, or, or those, I don't know, that those set of issues are something that we are really continuing to, to work on um, and think about going forward. So it's, and it's interesting to think about the sort of the, the donor issue in the context also of, you know, a lot of this movement for sort of, paying for outcomes or paying for success in the social sector that we really want to contract, you know, not just on delivering programs, but on creating social change. And so I do think that the, the book and the framework in general is meant to be a, a slightly cautionary tale um, about, you know, how fast we want to move towards paying for, um, paying for outcomes and sort of conditioning things on outcomes, given the very real challenges inherent, right, in, in setting up the evaluations that are going to really measure those, those outcomes. But I think also for, for donors, you know, whether those are private foundations or, you know, institutional donors like USAID or, or other bilateral donors, I do think that those donors should really think hard about what constitutes within an organization a solid evidence system. And I think it's more important for a lot of organizations to, to be able to assess, does this organization collect and use data for learning and improvement? Is the organization committed to that process as opposed to does the organization have a demonstrated randomized control tile of what they're doing? And I think holding organizations a, a little bit more accountable or working with organizations in more collaborative fashion to really lift up and clarify these theories of change. Because I think the more we understand what organizations are doing, the more we can build up a collective evidence base, which I think takes the responsibility off of each individual organization, right, to consistently and over and over again demonstrate, you know, the, the quote, the impact of their program. So I do think that the donors in the field more generally, and I think this is starting to happen, can take responsibility for transportability that allows sharing of models that allow, that then allows to build up an evidence base. So that's maybe a little bit pie in the sky, but I think that's, you know, that's what we're working towards. On the, what we call the retail donor side, my colleague, you know, Dean Carlin, um, as, as a result in some ways of this work, um, co-founded an organization called Impact Matters, 
that does evidence audits of, of NGOs. And part of the mission of that organization was really to think about um, not necessarily which organizations have impact evaluations and we should only fund those impact organizations, but which organizations are committed to strong evidence and learning in what they do. And perhaps we should be driving funding towards, towards those organizations. So I think that's, an, that's, to me, is an interesting and it's still provocative consideration. I think, you know, in this moment here in the U.S. and globally, as we think about what leads to social change, and there's been, I think, a lot of pushback and arguments from organizations that, like, we don't have time to produce a theory of change for you. We are on the streets. People are dying. You know, a, a lot of fun by, pushback from, from communities of color that, you know, we, what we need to do is, is get some funding and, and, you know, make some immediate social change. And so I think um, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about and trying to think about, you know, how, how do we take, how do we think about our framework, um, which really prioritizes spending a lot of time on building out a theory of change? And how do we, how do we think about that in, in the face of demands for immediate social change? And how does you know, being able to do an evident, uh, evidence audit of some organizations, push money to them and push money away from other organizations um, that don't have the ability, let's say, to participate in, in some kind of a process like that. So I think these are really important sort of political economy questions for the sector. And I thought a lot about sort of putting in that we might need to put an E on the end of CART, make it more European, I guess. And then the E would be equity you know, what are the equity considerations here and how would we incorporate those equity considerations both into our organizational performance framework, but then also more, more broadly in the sort of political economy of, of development assistance. Yeah. So that's something I'm wrestling with and thinking a lot about. I don't have a great answer to, but I think yeah. it's something we need to deal with in the next phase of our, of our thinking on this. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point there. And um, we've talked about a lot, covered a lot of the areas of the book. And hopefully for anyone listening that hasn't read it yet, this is encouraging you to go get a copy of that. But for those that haven't yet read the book, what would you say would be one thing you hope someone takes away from the book overall? Summarize in one point. I, I I think it's really identify what's most important, figure out how you're going to learn about it and take action on it commit to taking action. I think those are the three, you know, that if I could boil it down to three simple steps, that's what it would be. Great. And then, you know, we've been talking a lot about impact and uh, perhaps using the word incorrectly here and not in the technical sense, but just curious, since you've written the book, which has been, you know, almost two years ago, what have you seen come out of this book? Have you seen any examples of organizations or donors really applying these principles from the book? That's a great question. I think, I mean, I think my hope is that, and my sense is that it has shifted the conversation um, a little bit around impact and given organizations, I guess, the opportunity to, I don't know if it's to push back or to reconsider in their relationships with with their stakeholders, what their evidence system is going to look like. And so I I, I like that it, it gives a basis for doing that, not to say we're not going to measure, but to say, here's, you know, here's how we're going to think about measurement. And I think the Right Fit Evidence Initiative has been working with a, a lot of different um, organizations on this. And so I think we're hopeful going forward that we'll have, we'll be able to put out something else that's helpful that sort of is kind of Right Fit Evidence in practice lessons from, you know, 10 different projects. So that's something that we're, 
looking forward to putting out there going forward. And I will say that if you, if people want to go to the Right Fit Evidence website on Innovations for Poverty Action, there are a lot of cases and sort of small pieces of the Goldilocks book that can be downloaded and, and I think are, are great for getting an introduction to the, to the principles. Yeah, that's perfect. And I'll make sure and put a link in the show notes so everyone can go, go there and check that out. You mentioned what's kind of coming next for you, but I was just curious on a more personal or professional level, what's uh, some projects you've been working on since the book? Let me think. I'm actually working on a project that is related, but in a kind of an, an interesting and different way. Uh, I'm working on a U.S.-based project looking at um, evidence-based initiatives in the social sector. So kind of looking at the prevalence of these clearinghouses for evidence-based practices and then the federal practice of tying federal reimbursements to the use of evidence-based practices. And uh, a lot of those evidence-based, so this is a really a question of generalizability, a lot of those evidence-based practices have been built up in certain communities, often white communities, and then are going to be used in communities of color or in tribal nations. And so there's this real question about what constitutes evidence and how well does that evidence travel in different settings. And so again, it's about having a clear theory of change, but also having a real, real clear um, conception of what context and environment means and how that shifts um, a theory of change. So I'm really excited to kind of look at this issue of how these evidence-based clearinghouses both help and possibly hinder the use of evidence-based practices in the social sector. That's fascinating. That's great. We'll be on the lookout for that then. That sounds like really important work. So thanks for doing that. And, and last question, I love asking this question. So what would be two books you've read recently that you'd recommend? Any type of book or any, any topic here? Yeah, well, I, I, I was thinking about it in the context of, you know, our conversation. Um, mm -hmm. And one book that I'm in the middle of reading and really enjoying is called Measuring Social Change by Alnor Ibrahim which is really thinking about how do we measure performance and think about uh, accountability in that sort of complex, multi-sector, collaborative world um, that we live in and take the perspective of the manager and the organization seriously. So I've been really enjoying that book. And also because I work a lot with international organizations and NGOs, um, I'm about to launch into a book called Between Power and Irrelevance. Uh, the Future of Transnational NGOs by George Mitchell, Hans-Peter Schmidt, and Tosca Bruno van, I could never say Tosca's last name very well, van Vikjen. And that's really, it's a really provocative book looking at sort of where do NGOs sit right now? Um, what are the issues of power and are they in danger of becoming irrelevant and should they become irrelevant? So I'm excited to dive into that book yeah. as well and, and see how they uh, address those questions. So those are two books that are sitting right next to me on my desk right now. Awesome. Well, I'll put links to those in as well, if anyone wants to take a look at those. And then lastly, if people want to find you and your research and the projects you're working on online, where should they go? Um, I think the best place to go is to the, to the website from my school, the Evans School. Um, I, because I have a fairly distinctive name, just Googling my name, Mary Kay Guberty will, will make my website um, pop up right there. And the work I'm doing at the Evans School and at the Nancy Bell Evans Center on Philanthropy is, is featured there. So Perfect. I welcome people to do that. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much. Been a really insightful conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to uh, talk with us and hope you have a wonderful day. Nathan, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation. Take care.